The following discussion took place at an Ivy Ideas Night in Boston, featuring the author and former editor-in-chief of Seventeen Magazine, Anne Choquette. In this live conversation, Anne draws on her combined editorial and entrepreneurial experience to show us what it takes to earn respect, build a supporting network, and achieve our dreams. Referencing her most recent book, The Big Life, Embrace the Mess, Work Your Side Hustle, Find a Monumental Relationship, and Become the Badass Babe You Are Meant to Be, Choquette reveals how we can all achieve our dreams, be that success in the workplace or making the world a better place for all. This episode of the Ivy Podcast is presented by Smartwater. What makes Smartwater so smart? It starts with a little inspiration from the clouds, nature's pure source of water. Smartwater copies those puffy white clouds in creating vapor-distilled purity, pure perfection. Smartwater also has electrolytes, which helps give it that clean, crisp taste. Clouds will always be the inspiration, since the water is vapor-distilled for purity. Purity you can taste, hydration you can feel. Choose Smartwater or Smartwater Sparkling today and at your local retailer. To start off, because we just mentioned you were editor-in-chief of Seventeen for seven years, Um, so how you segued into your current role, let's talk about what your biggest takeaway from your role was about young women, both as leaders and both as a leader, excuse me, and as a person. Uh, So being editor-in-chief of Seventeen for the better part of a decade was like uh, one of the greatest honors of my entire life. Here, I, I had the opportunity to lead a legendary magazine um, that was so beloved by so many women. There wasn't, I can, there wasn't a young woman, an old woman, an even older woman who didn't come up to me and tell me how important Seventeen had been in their growing up. And it was a tremendous honor, but also like a tremendous challenge to make this iconic, legendary brand relevant for a new generation of young women. And so um, I'm going to give you just a little bit of context. So when I got to 17 in 2007, flashback with me to 2007, um, it was the year of Lauren Conrad. And I, you know, and everybody in this room, I am pretty sure, maybe even the men, wanted to be blonde and tan and drive your Mercedes SUV through Southern California with the wind blowing in your hair, going shopping and drinking giant Frappuccinos. Natasha Bedingfield song. Yeah, 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 exactly. And so, um, and the, it wasn't that young women weren't ambitious um, in 2007, 2008, but they just assumed they would be successful, right? The economy was booming, affluence seemed easy, there were like everybody seemed to have a giant house with three cars in the driveway and huge in-home theaters, and um, and we just expected that we would we would be successful. Um, so fast forward, we had a terrible recession. Remember the boring, terrible, awful recession, and we were shopping in our closets and drinking our cappuccinos at home. And um, what happened for young women was this was a a sea change. It was a moment that rather than see your horizons get smaller, you were mobilized. And I could see it from where I was sitting at 17 because suddenly I was bombarded with messages for advice, not fashion advice, not beauty advice, but career advice from young women in high school. And young women were getting internships in high school and starting businesses in college and voraciously reaching out to women in positions of power and success for tips on how to achieve and succeed. And this was the backdrop. This was 
this was such a change that we hadn't prepared for. We were a fashion and beauty magazine. It was fun to be 17, and that was the magazine that I was making. And frankly, it was way more fun <laughs> for me to be programming for this incredibly ambitious, driven generation. Um, and so now, fast forward, the women who grew up with me at 17, you, um, are now in their 20s and 30s. And um, the way that you see work is different than previous generations. And so um, when I talk about the change that millennial women are leading in work and in life and in love, I know because I was there from the very moment that the change started happening. Um, because those dreams that you have when you're 16 years old and you're looking out your bedroom window, imagining what your life is going to be like, those are the dreams that stay with you forever. And whether or not you actually really want to be a backup dancer for Britney Spears these days, um, probably not. Um, you know, the, the, the feeling that you want to bring into your life from those dreams is still so important. Um, and so that's my... That was my biggest takeaway from 17. It's what made me excited about moving into this next phase of life with the generation of women who grew up with me that, um, you know, millennial women are changing what it means to be powerful and successful in the world for everyone. And I am frankly on a campaign that we should all be more millennial. I mean, I don't have to convince you. You are millennials. But I'll tell you today, the Mass Women's Conference, I really had to convince my room full of Gen X and Boomer women that, um, that their millennial employees, many of them were the bosses, the Gen X and Boomers, are the ones that they should be listening to and accommodating. So, nice. so I'm on a campaign. I'm on your side. <laughs> So starting as research for your book, you started these dinners where you were bringing together women to both connect them and empower them, and you called it this group, the Badass Babes. Can you talk about how <laughs> you first came up with the idea for these dinners, how the name Badass Babes came together, just sort of the, the origin of these dinners? Well, I call the dinners the Badass Babes because the women who are at my table are game-changing rock star pioneers who you want to have in your circle. That's what makes them badass. And it started incredibly organically. And it was, it was, um, it was the thing that, that made the book happen. So um, the very first thing I did when I left 17 was I knew I was going to write this book. And I said, well, I say a lot of things and I've got a lot of ideas. I'll just write them down. <laughs> It's a book, right? And so I said, wait a minute, but there's a couple of things I don't know. Like we didn't really talk about grown-up relationships and sex at 17. I said, I know. I'm going to have a couple of chicks over for um, pizza and wine, and we'll talk about relationships and sex, and then, and then I'll write the book. Um, and so I did. I invited one young woman, and I said, bring a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend. I have room at my dining room table for six, maybe eight um, and it's New York City, and um, and I um, I made a killer cheese plate because that matters to me very much. Um, and I put fancy frozen pizza in the oven because I don't cook, and I but at the same time I wanted it to feel like I cooked. It's not like I ordered pizza. I mean I like cooked, um, and then we opened a lot of bottles of wine, um, and we started to talk about relationships and sex for about five minutes. And then the conversation turned into something that I had never expected. We were talking about ambition and work and 
parents and dates who ghost and toxic bosses and sabotaging co-workers and this phenomenal pressure to be perfect. Um, Instagrammy high five always on, like, 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 um, that these women were feeling even when they were sitting at their desk and they were, they were frankly admitting that they were in a lot of ways harming themselves from this tremendous pressure to be perfect. And the dinner went for hours. And by the end of the dinner, the end of the first dinner, um, my brain felt like it was on fire. And I was like, I have to do this again. And so I did. And I did it again and again and again. And over the course of two years that it took to write the book, I did two dozen or more dinners. Um, every single time it was a different group of women. It was. And, um, it, and it was just so organic. Um, I would meet a young woman who I thought was interesting and she would bring her friends. And because they were all, I didn't want them to be best friends because I didn't want to be on the outside of that conversation. They'd be like, oh, you know, like the one time. And I'd be like, no, no, I don't know about the one time. Um, but I wanted them to feel comfortable with each other. So everybody was there because they knew somebody else in the room. And um, what I... Um, and, and because they all sort of knew each other, they all kind of hung together around an idea. So there was the dinner of women who were all side hustlers. They were in their first or second jobs and they all had some interesting thing they were cooking on the side. There was a dinner of entrepreneurs and they all had this social good um, thread to their entrepreneur work. Um, there was a dinner of superstars, these women who like by the time they were 30, they were like amazing, amazing. There, I did a dinner of moms. Um, rock star moms, young women with super high-powered careers who all had um, toddlers at home. And what I was most amazed by that dinner was that they all showed up. Nobody said, my kid is sick, my husband has to work late, my babysitter called out. Like, everybody showed up because the conversation was so important. Um, and uh, since the book launched, I've been going across the country doing these dinners. I've put a post up on my site um, where you can download the guide and you can do your own dinner um, to follow the same path that I followed. And uh, this is the part where the men come in. Um, I actually started to do a series of dinners with just men. And, um, and I'll tell you a little bit about the journey of how that happened because I was terrified. I knew from the beginning of my dinner series that I was going to have to invite men into the conversation because we, we frankly would spend 30% um, of the time talking about relationships and talking about men. And I couldn't believe some of the things that young women were telling me about the men in their lives, about, their, about the men they were dating. And so I did, for the, for the book, I did um, two or three dinners with men, but I was so terrified to do it that I waited until the last minute. My editor is like, hello. When is it, when's that chapter coming? It was the very last chapter. I was terrified to do it. And, and in fact, I invited other women to that dinner. I did a dinner of single women and I asked them to bring their dates or friends. And then I did a dinner of couples um, and asked them to bring their significant others. So that was... Because I've spent my career talking with and for and programming and understanding women. And I do not pretend to understand men. It's not even, it's not even a, it's not even like a goal. And in fact, my husband says to me all the time, like, you really shouldn't tell people that you should, under, you should figure out how to understand them. Um, and it doesn't matter. I was still terrified. Like, I just didn't know how the conversation was going to go. Um, 
and it went great. It was fine. And so actually it went so great and everybody was so interested in what happens at these dinners that I started to do dinners with just men. I was like, okay, I can take off the, take away the safety net. And I call them the badass dude dinners. And I don't serve pizza and rosé. We had, um, we had grain bowls, Mediterranean grain bowls and red wine. (laughs) And because I wanted the food to be different, and frankly, I'd eaten a lot of pizza over two years. I could not eat any more pizza. So the big life is life on your own terms. It is not having it all. That is somebody else's idea of the way things should be. It's like a, t- a tick list of the way of things that other people think you should have. A big job, big, a big family, a house in the suburbs, and two children, and whatever. The big life is about what's meaningful to you. It's about those twists and turns and adventure. It's about putting together the pieces of your life so they work for you. There is not one size fits all of the big life. It's not about affluence or power or money. And when I talk about ambition, about ambitious women, I don't mean like that old idea of like hard charging, corporate shoulder pads, climbing up the corporate ladder, breaking the glass ceiling. I don't mean that. I mean, maybe I mean that, right? There are some women who feel that way, Um, but there's a lot of women who feel ambitious for owning their own life, right? That your ambition is about um, wanting to be in control of your destiny, and um, that's the big life. That's what, it's life on your own terms, Um, and so um, thank you for letting me say that because that's what's so important. What was the other half of your question? <laughs> so how, do, how is that manifested in your life? And then how does someone, a young person, go about trying to find that in their own life? Well, so I do not, so I am not millennial. Um, I am solidly Gen X. And the conditions under which I grew up and the rules that I had to follow um, are different than what you had to follow and, what you, and what's in front of you now and the opportunities in front of you now. So I don't pretend that my story is the roadmap for how your life should be. Um, but I do tell a lot of stories in the book because, um, because I think there's some illuminating points in there to be made. You know, I, I have always been someone who embraced that adventure, who was looking, I, like I, I am driven by a fear of boredom in my career, in my personal life, um, in my, with, with everything. And so when I talk about my big life, Um, you know, it took me a while to figure out what that meant for me and how I'm redefining success. And I very often find myself falling into the trap of, um, the way things should be or what I thought I wanted as opposed to what I wanted. And that's actually been a real challenge for me to like, listen to my heart and to my soul and not to the voice inside my head that says, well, those are the rules and you better follow them. Um, especially in the magazine business, because we write the rules. (laughs) We write five ways to do X, Y, and Z, or 10 things you're not doing this month that you need to be doing right now. Whatever it is, that's that's our job. And so um, in my own life, that's the piece that's been the most important for me, to continue to embrace adventure and to listen to myself um, for what I want and not what I think I should have. This episode of the Ivy Podcast is presented by Smartwater. What makes Smartwater so smart? It starts with a little inspiration from the clouds, nature's purest source of water. Smartwater copies those puffy white clouds in creating vapor-distilled purity, pure perfection. Smartwater also has electrolytes, which helps give it that clean, crisp taste. 
Clouds will always be the inspiration, since the water is vapor distilled for purity. Purity you can taste, hydration you can feel. Choose Smart Water or Smart Water Sparkling today and at your local retailer. That's our show for this week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings, and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community, and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.